Nevertheless, despite their different inclinations, all wanted to be ruled by a king, for they had not yet experienced the sweetness of liberty. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I'm one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. We're back with another episode in the New Humanist series about the rise of the Roman Empire. No republic was ever greater. We are walking through the masterpiece from the founding of the city by ancient Roman historian Titus Livy, while also reading Machiavelli's Renaissance-era commentary on Livy's history. Livy wrote of Rome, No republic was ever greater or holier or richer in good examples. In no city has greed and luxury seeped in so late, and no place has given so much honor to simplicity and frugality. In this series, we are investigating how this came to be. Well, Jonathan, we're back mm-hmm. back with Mr. Livy, talking about the founding of the city of Rome. Today, we're going to be going through the chapters that cover Rome's second king, Numa. Set the stage for us. What just happened? It's been a few episodes since we did No Republic's Ever Greater. How do we get to Numa? What, what, uh, what preceded this? Yeah, so beforehand, we have Romulus establishing the, you know, the kingdom. It grows. They basically make it a place of refuge where anyone can just come and start afresh. And then they realize that they need wives if they're going to get anywhere. And they send a committee, a wife hunting committee, and it returns unsuccessfully. And so they come up with this plan to throw a party and all the surrounding peoples who are invited uh, show up. And when the time comes, the Romans uh, snatch up women as wives. And then eventually this ends up leading to a conflict, especially with the Sabines, uh, many, many years later after conflicts with other other peoples. And the Sabine women step in and kind of save the day and make peace between their fathers and their husbands. And that kind of charming picture of, of the grandfathers carrying their grandchildren with their shields. And so things are looking... Like okay, there's gonna be there's gonna be peace. This seems to be resolved, and the next important episode is the disappearance of of uh, Romulus. He gets either taken into the clouds or assassinated by the the higher ups, the next in line and the uh, aristocracy at the time. And who can say when speaking about something so ancient? So classic kind of. Livian way of approaching some of these questions. So now we're left without uh, without a king. And so what are we going to do? And that's the, the question that's answered in the selection for today. No king, what's next? Yeah, I was struck by the quote you read at the beginning because we've been making parallels to the Bible. And so the story of the Israelites is, you know, they leave slavery journey through the desert, and then they're ruled in this kind of strange, decentralized, prophetic manner in which they're kind of left to their own devices. And then when things go poorly, God sends them judges who get them back on the right track, free them from their enemies. They're these kind of prophet generals, these judges. And eventually the Israelites grow weary of their judges sent by God. And they want to be just like everyone else. And they want a king. And so the Israelites make this transition from running themselves with uh, periodic intervention from God through a charismatic leader to desiring a monarchy. Here we get the opposite movement where, you know, everyone reading Livy knows where this is going. We're going to get the expulsion of the Tarquins. The Roman Republic is going to be set up. You're going to have you're going to have this you know, semi-democratic empire, but we're not there yet. So they, they're going to have to learn to love liberty, but they don't love it yet. They're still, they're still monarchists. They haven't tasted the sweetness of liberty yet, and they still want a king. Yeah, the, the fact that they want a king needs to be explained. So that's, that's interesting. He doesn't, he, it's almost as if Libby 
you know, he has his reader in mind. He, his, the readers are going to read about these ancient Romans who want a king. That's gross, right? That's terrible. What's wrong with them? <laughs> and it's like, well, look, they had, hadn't yet tasted the sweet flavor. One of the interesting things is that with the Israelites and their FOMO for kingship, is you look at the you look at the arguments that God gives Samuel. God tells Samuel they have not re- rejected you; they have rejected me. But go and tell them this, and and he and gives him a list of the of the things that the king is going to do. Like he, your sons are going to be taken for battle. Your daughters are going to be taken to be servants or slaves in the household of the king. Like it's going to you know they're going to you're going to be taxed up the wazoo. IRS is going to go crazy. It's just going to be bad, bad, bad. Every $600 on Venmo, they're going to want, want their uh, their shekels. It, right. And what's interesting about that uh, list of things that he tells uh, God tells Samuel to relay to the Israelites, is that they're, they're kind of like um, prudential, pragmatic sort of considerations. It's like, look, these are going to be the consequences of the kingship. Are you sure you want to... Are you sure you want to sign the contract? Are you sure you want to press play on this? And they do. They do. And I think that perhaps um, one of the appeals that a kingship has in the ancient world, um, we see a little bit of this here, is that when the kingship was, in, um, well, when, while there was an interregnum time between kings, people had this sense that they had too many masters. So... From their uh, one of their motivations for having a king is to kind of cut down on the number of masters that you have, and that's kind of that. I mean, if I think if we're honest, that's kind of appealing. Just like there's less people that you need to deal with, that you need to be under under the authority of. So this kind of gets us into the mindset of of an ancient Roman or ancient person who is like yeah let's have a king it's gonna be great because we i think we americans also share this anti-monarchical sort of sentiment we do like the monarchy as a you know quaint thing that we can observe on television but in terms of like the 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 pragmatics of it we're not we don't tend to be fans no i mean it's it's baked into our political cultural dna to reject kingship and in large part because of the Romans, because our founding fathers were such keen students of the Roman writers. Because for the Romans, the Romans could tolerate a dictator, but as soon as the dictator puts a crown on his head, then we got to kill Julius Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. A crown too far. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so the desire to have one, I think it's good to try and draw out what is the appeal of kingship and it is hard for an american to figure it out and probably honestly even in a our listeners in merry old england and wherever else a monarchy still exists it probably is hard i guess i'd just speak for my my american self but it's hard to imagine yeah the appeal of having of having a king why you'd want one especially because we tend to think of kingship as yeah, it's just medieval, it's Middle Ages. You've got peasants and feudal lords and kings and aristocrats. It's we just got to cut all that away. And in that picture, what you miss is that the king and the aristocrats are not friends. You think of Louis the Fourteenth in Versailles. So you've got the kind of absolutist monarchy, which is kind of a innovation in the early modern period, because the king is really no longer sharing power with the nobility. Why? Because the monarchy and the nobility have always been rivals for power. And not until Louis XIV, really, did the throne, did the monarchy in France gain total ascendance over the nobility. And so in history class, you might remember all the kind of funny anecdotes about how he did it, where this kind of elaborate court ritual where, you know, the greatest honor you could hope for would be to be in the bedroom and be the one to like ring the bell to wake up the king. 
because he'd he'd go to sleep in in a little bedroom, but then his servants would come in and like help him dress and wake him up, and then he'd like go lay down in his fancy bed in his fancy bedroom. He's already awake, but pretending to sleep, and then the Lord most in favor that day gets to be the one to wake him up. And it sounds absurd, but it's very calculated on the part of the king because he can hand out these favors that are, in terms of power politics, meaningless in the grand scheme of things because he runs the country and these lords no longer do. They don't have their own armies anymore and they're dependent on the king for everything. And so in this way, monarchy is oftentimes an ally of democracy from a certain point of view because the little king next door is your lord and he oftentimes has more authority over your life but if he is subjugated totally to the king who's much more distant that often means more freedom for you and so you you see this later on in the french revolution for example when Louis the Sixteenth. At one point, just as things start to unravel, he tries to make plans to institute universal suffrage in France, because he judges, probably correctly, that the majority of people are loyalists and monarchists. And if you get normal Frenchmen voting, they'll vote for what the king wants, and then he'll be able to crush the kind of uppity bourgeoisie and kind of restore the ancien regime through universal suffrage. And so you, you see this in Livy. In this interregnum, they can't decide a king because you have the Sabines and the Romans are kind of together forming the city of Rome, and neither side wants to budge. They had two kings, Romulus and then the Sabine king, I can't remember his name, Titus, I think. And then Titus died, and so Romulus was the sole king. And then, the, so the Sabines aren't going to let the Romans have a Roman king to rule all of them. But the Romans don't want a Sabine king to rule them. So you have this interregnum, this between kings, between the kingship. And the issue is forced by the people. Livy says, murmurs then arose among the plebs that their servitude had been multiplied, that a hundred masters had been given them instead of one. Because in this interregnum, the Sabines and the Romans had set up basically a committee. And then the committee had a committee. So you had like the central committee, and then you had the Politburo, and then the Politburo was kind of rotating of who got to wield executive authority. You got five days to rule the city, and then the next guy got in charge. And they're like, we don't want 100 people ruling us. We want only one. And so the, the plebs are saying, we need a king right now. Yeah, and it's interesting it seems like what the conflict between the Sabines and the Romans kind of illustrates is this desire for leadership to be representative. We want, and you know, they both want a king that they can feel confident that it's on their side. Right? That's why the Romans want a Roman king. That's why the Sabines want a Sabine king. And, but uh, initially, they can't really. There's not a prominent figure. That that is an automatic sort of yeah let's let's get this person to be king and it seems like this is true for both both factions both sides no one has a champion that they want to send forth but they're what they're sure of is that they want the king to be one of their guys and one thing that we see in this reading is that the people seem to be happy to relinquish all sorts of power if they are convinced that that those in power are one of one of their own. So uh, an example of this is with how they decide to to come up with laws and with who can be king. So they come up with a system where basically the people put forth a candidate and then senators are the ones that ratify. When the when the uh, Senate brings forth this proposal to the people, this is what Libby says. Does this so please the people that they did not want to give the appearance of being outdone in goodwill? And so they merely resolved that the Senate should decide who should be king in Rome. They've really shown that they're our guys. They're they're gonna be work they're gonna be working for our best interest. So yeah, let's let them let them make these calls. And it's pretty crafty. So even though 
you have this kind of democratic upsurge in favor of monarchy, which sounds paradoxical, but as I've right. tried to make clear, there's a kind of sense to it. Another analogy would just be like, why do populist movements tend to center in on one strong figure to lead them? It's the same thing, just without royal regalia. It's a very similar dynamic. But the the senators aren't dumb, and so they kind of sense this, and it's, it says, cum sensisent ea moveri patres. My translation is really nice. Perceiving that such ideas were in the wind. The senators, so the senators are like, uh-oh, they don't like having having 100 king, little kings ruling over them. We got to do something. And so they they thought it would be well to offer spontaneously a thing which they were on the verge of losing. So this this just really, as a parent, really rung <laughs> like 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 oh my my kid is gonna lose it i'm trying to think of a good analogy but it's like let me offer the thing that you know might not happen like i'm gonna i'm gonna lose control in this situation unless i offer this thing that they really want if i offer it before they throw a tantrum then i'm not incentivizing tantrums but they're gonna have a tantrum in about five minutes so hey do you want cheetos <laughs> <laughs> that that reminds me of a nightmare I had. Well, a nightmare might be too strong of a word, but I was teaching middle school in person, and it was time to dismiss. It was, it was time to end end school, and some parents were just showing up, you know, into the classroom to take their kids out, and this started leading to chaos. And it was clear that kids were going to just start standing up and just leaving. And, you know, I had this idea that I had to be, it was, it was, I had to be the one to dismiss them in order for the proper order of things to be maintained. And so since it was clear that chaos was about to erupt and people were just going to leave out of their own will, I just said, okay, everyone, you're dismissed. Right. (laughs) It's that sort of thing. It's like, no, no, I'm not going to let you quit. You're fired. You know, that sort of dynamic. Yeah, you kind of maintain the frame of your authority right? so that you can wield it later for other more important things and you give up the thing that you're going to lose already anyways. Like, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to be able to withhold Cheetos uh, this afternoon. So let me let me be the one to give the Cheetos rather than have them demanded of me. That's what the Senate does. And so they said, okay, plebs, you name the king. All we'll do is ratify it. You get to decide who it is, and we'll just give our stamp of approval if we think it's a good idea. And the people are like, oh, so generous. You should name the king. You offer this to us, we'll offer it back. So I kind of create this session of responsibility, of authority, kind of creates this positive mimetic, mimetic spiral where they're like being the classes are being generous to each other rather than fighting each other. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, and I, and... Uh, it's not, it, like you were saying, this is crafty and very astute of the senators it, because what is it that the people want? Well, they want, why do they want to pick the king? Because they want to make sure that the king is on their side. And so here they've done a gesture that's meant to very powerfully indicate that, you know, we, the senators are on your side and um, it wins the day for the senators. Yep. So then the I think to put it in more modern terms, you get a kind of consciousness of class that papers over consciousness of ethnicity. And so the senators, because of the restiveness of the commoners, realize, okay, we're all in this together as senators, even if we're divided on ethnic lines between Romans and Sabines. So let's get over our ethnic difference and protect our class by choosing a king. And so that leads to a Sabine king. Numa Pompilia centers the scene. That's right. Livy says he enjoyed a great reputation for justice and piety. He was deeply versed so far as anyone could be in that age. So Livy's saying, these are the dark ages. So, you know, <laughs> they don't know a lot, <laughs> but he knew the most. Anyone could in all law, divine and human. Omnis divini atque humani iuris, divine and human law. 
And then Livy goes into this little digression about how it was the Dark Ages, but Numa was so learned. How could he have known all this stuff? And apparently there's a urban legend, I guess, that he was a student of Pythagoras in Greece. Kind of reminds me of the uh, early Christians looking at Socrates. Hmm. And it's like, oh, wow, Socrates, how did he know all this stuff? He must have read Moses. Yep, yep. Right? And it's uh, kind of similar. It's like, how do, how do we explain this? And, and so for, for them, it was Pythagoras. And I think, I think the, the response is pretty similar. It's like, could have been, but the chronology doesn't quite work. It's like 100 years off. Like Numa was 100 years before Pythagoras, so it couldn't have been Pythagoras. L- Livy doesn't come up with an explanation quite as fanciful as Justin Martyr does for the resemblance of the Greco-Roman myths to the biblical story where demons are flying around listening to the Hebrew prophets and then filling the ears of the Greeks and Romans with stories that resemble them in order to mislead them. So that was very fun in the Justin Martyr episode we did with Calvin. Livy's explanation for Numa's piety and learnedness is much more typically Roman. It was Numa's native disposition then, as I incline to believe, that tempered his soul with noble qualities. And his training was not in foreign studies. And so this feels important because if he were a student of Pythagoras, that'd mean that the kind of piety and legal system of Rome was rooted in Greece, if that were true. And Livy says that can't be true because of the chronology. So where does it come from? It's not from Greece. His training was not in foreign studies, but in the stern and austere discipline of the ancient Sabines, a race incorruptible as any race of the olden time. So this is kind of hearkening back. No republic was ever greater or holier or richer in good examples. Why? Well, here's part of the the answer to that question. How is it that greed and luxury seeped in so late to Rome, even when it was powerful and The state was wealthy, but the people esteemed simplicity and frugality because of this stern and austere discipline of the Sabines who are incorruptible and that Numa kind of actionalized, is that a word? That discipline into the laws of Rome. Right. And so we have now a second founding, as it were, because it talks about, you know, just as Romulus and Remus kind of settled on who would be the ruler by augury. Now, uh, Numa wants, basically, we can say that he wants to be certified not by the Senate, but by the gods. They come up with this way to, to certify him as, as, the next, as the next king. It's a really interesting scene. It makes me think of... Things Hidden from the Foundation of the World, which is a book of René Girard's talking about um, all sorts of things, kind of an extended exposition of his theories of mimetic rivalry and the role of mimetic rivalry in the founding of political communities. And one of the things that he talks about that is very compelling is the sacrificial centrality of kingship and that kings were these holy victims. They were kind of given authority and power and then killed. And it's kind of crazy, but his argument is interesting. It's worth reading. And I think you see echoes of it here. If if that were true, I think you could make a case for it here. So in this augury, because the gods need to approve of this choice for kingship, right? And so what happens? An augur conducted him, Numa, to the citadel. So you you bring you bring this holy, pious, almost divine figure up on top of a tower. And then you sit him down on a stone facing the south. Well, it's sounding a little bit like bringing someone up to the top of a pyramid and putting them on a rock, an altar. The augur seated himself on Numa's left, having his head covered. Oh, like he's going to kill him. And holding in his right hand the crooked staff without a knot, which they called elitus. And then he prays and he asks for signs from the heavens that this man is approved. But, I mean, you could really easily swap Numa out and put in a bowl 
and put him on top of this tower on a rock, cover him, and then slit his throat as the and let that blood be this part of this religious ritual. And so instead, you have a man brought up there and kind of having a rod placed on him and asking for the approval of the gods. And then he comes back down the mountain, so to speak, back down the pyramid, and the gods have intervened, and now he's king. Yeah, it makes you wonder about the similarities between consecration rituals and sacrificial ones. Putting oil on somebody's head. Mm-hmm. And also you have this kind of, I don't know if this is a, this is definitely a New Testament phrase, and I'm, I, I wonder if something like this is also in the Old Testament, but this idea of a living sacrifice. Uh, you know, there's, this is a consecration for life. It's a kind, kind of sacrifice. Right. One thing that I wish was here, you know, in the director's cut maybe, but not, it's not here, is what exactly was the augury? That's a good question. It doesn't <laughs> really say. It's like, it's like, it's going to happen within this boundary. And that's all that we know. And the reason why there's something potentially questionable is because of some of the things that Numa does later on where he pretends to have these dialogues with with a goddess in order to basically, you know, improve his PR power. But in in terms of the second founding, it's interesting to see it seems that part of what Libby wants to do with Romulus and with Numa is to explain to powerful impulses that might seem contradictory that are inherent to the Roman people. On the one hand, this kind of warlikeness, like we're going to fight and we're going to win, even if we lose the first, you know, five times, in the end, we are going to win. And then on the other hand, this really kind of reverent posture towards law and order. And so he has uh, Romulus, and now he has Numa as the two founders that kind of represent these two these two impulses that that we see in in Roman people. And it's especially interesting because for all that religious reverence, Livy does seem very skeptical. Like you said with the augury, the augur he prays to Jupiter and says part of what he part of his prayer is exhibit to us unmistakable signs within those limits which I have set. So he said, like, show me probably birds or something or a comet or something in this quadrant of the sky. But it doesn't say actually what he asked for. It says he then specified the auspices. So the quote of the prayer ends and Livy just says he then specified the auspices which he desired should be sent. And upon their appearance, Numa was declared king. So it's like, really? Did it really did it really happen? Did he really say I want, you know, 12 vultures, just like Romulus, to fly through the southern sky, and then we'll know he's king? Or did he kind of wait for something and then say, yeah, that's what I prayed under my breath? Livy is leaving open that possibility, and I don't think that suspecting that is kind of historicizing or, like, is what a modern would do. I think you can be kind of pious, ancient person and read that and be a little suspicious, especially because, as you say, Livy then says... Yeah, and then Numa would, you know, pretend to have these conferences with the goddess Agiria. He would chat about all the tricky matters of state with her. And then he'd come to the people and say, oh, yeah, I talked with the goddess. And here's what she said. Livy just says, yeah, he pretended. Yeah. And what's uh, in some ways ultimately important is the effect that Numa's reign has upon Rome. And another candidate for the cold quote could have been this first sentence of, of 19. Libby writes, having received the kingship in this way, Numa prepared to give the new city that had been founded by force of arms a new foundation in justice, law, and proper observances. And then he, Libby goes on to talk about the, the challenges of, of trying to establish law and proper observances amongst a warlike people. I mean, the, the people of, you know, these are criminals and bandits who have decided to start afresh for whatever motivations that they might have, maybe 
maybe they got tired of being hunted down, what have you. These are not your regular kind of law-abiding citizens by by habit. They've had a different life until you know until this point. So he comes up with these challenges establishing law and religion is is one of the ways in which he seeks to to temper this warlike impulse. Right. Yeah. Livy's bringing out through this episode with Numa the kind of dual character of man, a dual character which is in conflict with itself or with each other. Men grow wild and savage through warfare. And so Numa's like, okay, these warlike people need to be softened by the disuse of arms. And then he creates a a symbol of this that people might be familiar with. The temple of Janus at the bottom of the Argiletum has an index of peace and war, that when an open, it might signify that the nation was in arms. When closed, that all the peoples round about were pacified. So you have this temple of Janus. And Janus, of course, is what? The two-faced god. So the dual nature of man, the warlike and wild and savage versus the civilized and kind of pious and orderly. Livy goes on to say, so Numa closed it because war was not in effect. All the people around were at peace and then eventually it gets opened again and then closed twice more afterwards after the conclusion of the first Punic War. And then August, Caesar Augustus closed it after the Battle of Actium when he vanquished his enemies and became the undisputed emperor of Rome. Yeah, and it's interesting. Numa has this um, sense that most of the Roman kings will be like Romulus and not like himself. This kind of adds extra pressure, I think, in his mind to establish certain things that will be able to temper, it seems like, to be able to temper the Romulus-like kings. And so he establishes all of these uh, different priestly offices that that are meant to that are meant to do this. So the this theme of religion tempering the warlike is is pretty consistent in this election. And but it cuts the other way too, because Numa Numa knows okay these people are really warlike, and if I soften them, yeah right, and their peace, there's a totally opposite danger that will happen, and it's the danger that. Our title and our kind of poll quote is referring to, which is that in peace and prosperity, greed and luxury seep in. And so Numa's like, okay, I can't have these people just be roving bands of marauders all the time. That's useful for conquering our enemies, but we have to have an orderly city that can grow. At the same time, we can't become Greek. You know, sitting around, drinking wine all day, talking about philosophy. Also bad news. This is something I think we discussed in Machiavelli. Where Machiavelli says, look, the most virtuous cities are the poor ones because they don't have any luxuries to waste their time on. And they're just really focused on the necessities. And of course, Socrates proposes this in the Republic. He says, let's give people just the absolute minimum basically sleeping in the dirt and eating vegetables. Then you'll have a virtuous city. Glaucon said, oh, it's a city of pigs. And Machiavelli similarly kind of rejects just creating a virtuous city through poverty. And so Numa sees this and is like, yeah, I don't want to just have a poor city. So the very first thing to do, he thought, as being the most efficacious with a population which was ignorant and in those early days uncivilized, was to imbue them with the fear of heaven. And so Machiavelli talks about law. Law is the thing that's going to enforce the discipline which poverty would normally enforce. But without poverty, you need law in order to make these kind of Spartan, stoical people. Numa says, well, let's start with religion, because these people are probably too uncivilized even for law. You got to just make them scared of God. And so that's why he pretends to go talk with the goddess that, you know, I've received these instructions from the goddess. The implication being, if you guys don't listen to me, the gods will strike you down. We also see Numa establishing a calendar and festive days. 
It says he also pointed days on which state business could or could not be done, since it would be desirable to have times when nothing could be brought before the people. It's it's good for there to be times in which nothing is done. Maybe that sounds familiar. Do you mean to tell me that the Ten Commandments could be a compendium of the natural law? That used to be a very popular opinion. <laughs> that the Sabbath day is not just pure revelation and that it's actually evident through uh, natural reasoning that people should have time off from all concerns in order to uphold piety? No, I think natural reason says that the post office must run 24-7. That seems to be the conclusion. Yeah, yeah, there really should be, like, Amazon should go dark on Sundays. Like, you shouldn't be able even to do internet shopping. (laughs) I think this would be nice. You know, if you really, really believe that there should be a time for rest and apart for, for worship and you want everybody to have that opportunity, then that does have ramifications on the broader economy and um i remember a friend who was working at, at a walmart and when he was hired he, he he told them so yeah i can work any day i'm just not going to work on sundays and they they told him yeah that's fine that's okay and then two weeks in they gave him a sunday shift and he's like hey i i won't won't do this shift and he's like, no, we really need you to do this shift or we're going to have to let you go. And so he's like, all right, well, I guess this is it. He didn't show up to work after that. <laughs> you know, if if you really want a society that does that, then you need to think of like, well, the, that, that applies to the grocery stores because you want them to also have rest and time for worship. But if they need to be making sure that everything's running, right, right then they don't get this. And we should see it as a, there's a sense in which it's a, I don't want to say luxury because that makes it sound like unnecessary, but it's a really, a a huge value add um, to one's life to be able to actually take a time to, to rest. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. To think about, bring it back to Livy, to talk about civilization versus uncivilization. It's a luxury in that it separates humans from beasts, I think, because humans can plan ahead because a beast can't store, you know, besides like maybe squirrels can bury their acorns or whatever, but animals can't really store food up, for example, and be like, okay, I don't have to graze tomorrow or I don't have to hunt tomorrow. I can just hang out, you know, lick my bear cubs, and snack on my store of berries. I mean, maybe bears can are smart enough to like store food for the winter. But just as, as a luxury of civilization that you can transcend the law of the jungle. So thinking about law generally in the Ten Commandments and other basic law codes, you know, do not murder, do not steal, don't give false testimony, things like that. Animals don't have a code not to murder but we can live in peace with our neighbors because we can promulgate and enforce that law. We can have days where we don't work, where no one's expected to show up. Animals can't organize themselves and promulgate law like that. And doing so is part of creating a civilization, which is precisely what Numa wants to do with these, with a literal gang of marauders. I mean, that's who these people are. Romulus's friends. They were bandits. Yeah, and he's and uh, it's interesting. He is successful in in some respects, but you know, I think that the the overall picture that Livy uh, paints is that Numa is successful, but that there's this interesting thing about the the temple that has its door doors closed during a time of peace and. That doesn't happen very many times, right? It then happens twice. And so this, I think this, this indicates that Romulus is still, Romulus remains strong. And, and there's a sense in which Numa uh, wants this, right? Because we, we discussed he doesn't want the people to grow sluggish. And so it's a matter of 
not quelching Romulus, but tempering him, taming him with, with religion, as it were. Yeah, I, I, I would say Numa is not an anti-war crusader. He's a pro-civilization crusader. And for Rome to become really great, it's still going to have to be warlike because they have to go conquer the known world. The trouble is, you know, compare, compare the political success, near term and long term, of Romulus versus Genghis Khan. So on one level, Genghis Khan is more successful. Huge landmass conquered, biggest ever. And genetically, I mean, more people are related to Genghis Khan than any other human. <laughs> but you don't really have any political institutions in the lands he conquered that come down from the Golden Horde. It's kind of this massive sweep of rapine and pillage that dries up because they don't really create a civilization. And so it's this kind of magnificently barbaric and powerful moment in history, but it's really a moment. Whereas Romulus, I think, could have been Genghis Khan, and the Romans could have basically been the Golden Horde, but they end up being an empire that, you know, is instituted without limits, without any end date. And so T.S. Eliot's, I think, kind of cheeky, cheeky contention is that that promise in the Aeneid, an empire without an expiration date, is true. Like, we're still the inheritors of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire still lives. And so Numa is concerned not to, you know, create the United Nations and outlaw war. He's concerned with making sure his little golden horde creates something lasting, which you can only do through law and religion. I mean, he's obviously successful, and Livy says so. He says, look, uh, the neighboring peoples had hitherto considered that it was no city but a camp that had been set up in their midst. But then they kind of look around and see how pious these people are, how concerned they are with right worship of the gods. They're like, oh, this isn't a camp of marauders and barbarians. This is a city, a particularly religious city. So it's religion that converts the castra, the camp, into an urbs, into a city. That's the that's the agent. It's the religion. You know, despite despite the fact that he does not want he does not want to end Romulus. This is not a a complete turnaround. And it's interesting what Libby uh, describes his greatest success as. He says, "But the greatest of all his works." is that throughout his entire reign, he safeguarded peace no less than he did his kingdom. Thus, two successive kings, each in a different way, promoted the state, the one by war, the other by peace. Romulus ruled 37 years, Numa 43. The state was not only strong, but moderated by the arts of both war and peace. So you have you have this... This interplay of like, yeah, this needs to be, there needs to be a balance here. But also, despite that desire for that balance, peace is seen as an accomplishment. And I think that, I suspect that the part of what's kind of in the, in the mentality here is that war is kind of how things go. You need to do stuff to prevent war, right? So, War is not accomplished. War just happens. <laughs> and peace doesn't just happen. Peace is accomplished, I think, is kind of one of the, the, the thoughts here. And, and, so, and so this is seen as a, as a success. Some, you know, he accomplishes peace, and that's praiseworthy, even from the perspective of a true blue Roman. Yeah, and he... Just to think back two weeks ago to our Milton episode, when Milton wants to create this school that navigates that kind of dual nature of man, that kind of Janus-faced reality that men are warlike and peaceable, but those two things are at war with each other, which is why, I, which is why ultimately I think peace is an accomplishment, not just a negative state or a default state. It's because 
war and peace fight each other. And so if peace is going to exist, peace has to fight war. Peace has to make war on war in order to exist. And so Milton wants to create a school where, you know, he's got a two cavalry companies of students learning the Italian pronunciation of Latin and learning how to wrestle and fight on foot and on horseback because he doesn't want them to just be soldiers like in Sparta, nor does he want them to be effete and unable to fight. And this is the model Livy's holding up, at least, of accomplishing accomplishing the both, that you have a pious, civilized city that can also go make war. Yeah, and one thing that's interesting about this is peace is something that's cultivated by art, by religion, basically by civilization. And this is the opposite kind of narration that you see, um, what you see with Rousseau, for instance. The, it's this these civilizational artifacts or what lead to the problems or what lead to war or what lead to conflict. Whereas the ancient view is like, no, actually th- this, is what's, this is what solves the problem. And I don't think that you need to go full Hobbesian, full Hobbes, to accept accept this, um, but you definitely need to reject Rousseau and his account in order for Livy's account of of history to make to make sense. That's right. And just to kind of bring it all the way around, you know, New Humanists podcast is generally about trying to renew renew the humanistic project on some level, where we need to as close as we can to the ancient authors. Why? Because there's something worth getting out of them. They're not just beautiful and interesting in a kind of purely aesthetic sense, is that these are real fonts of wisdom. And so this particular focus on Livy is the same thing. This isn't just antiquarianism, you know, oh, it's interesting to read the Romans and read about the Romans. But there's there's real wisdom here. And it's twofold. I think one of like what statesmanship requires, which is a recognition of this Janus face of human nature and human society is that it's both warlike and peaceable. And so the great failure, for example, of the interwar politicians in Europe was they thought they could transcend that reality is like, you know, we've had the war to end all wars, and now we can create structures and systems like the League of Nations and laws outlawing war. Then we'll be done with this horrible thing that has plagued humanity since the beginning. We can finally transcend it. We've reached this like new dispensation of humanity. And so you had militaries in France and Britain that were utterly unprepared for a people that had not (laughs) decided to end war, but were very enthusiastic about war because it's just this kind of self-blinding to to human nature. Um, And I think also to just in terms of like what's required of statesmanship is, is just a recognition of reality. The previous Livy episode we did on a startup city and how there's the central importance of religion in setting it up. I mean, in this selection, religion is the thing that transforms the camp to it into a city. But you also see at the very founding of Rome, when Romulus makes him makes himself kind of king of all these marauders, and where they decide to plant the camp before it's really a city, is all done by augury all by an appeal to the gods. That's what gives it legitimacy. And as we learned from Livy, even in a monarchy, you can't rule without the consent of the ruled. And so for someone who wants to attempt a new political project, whether that's kind of like techno-futurists who want to plant a charter city in the middle of the ocean or something, or something a little more down to earth, they're going to have to take account of this this reality that religion is the is the thing that comes before culture even like human culture can't really exist in just pure banditry 
And the way you get that is clearly from religion. Well, uh, anything, anything else before we wrap up? One thing here is that the whole theme of piety really, really comes into full view. And of course, you know, this is, this is super important in the Aeneid, right? This theme. But here with Numa really, in a sense, establishing uh, religion and devotion, this is what he says. They had, they had something to occupy their minds. And since the heavenly powers seem to have an interest in human affairs, the people's constant preoccupation with the gods had imbued the hearts of all with such devotion, pietas, that the state was governed by regard for good faith and oaths rather than by fear of punishment under the law. So to, to your point about like the civilizational effects is here it seems like what one could take one could take Libby as not saying but showing <laughs> as a good storyteller that without the without religion that what can the state do it can it can promise punishments it can enforce things by you know by punishment under law but it can't it can't cultivate that more positive uh, posture towards your fellow men. It seems like Numa hits the sweet spot. You have laws, but you've also cultivated a real civilization, a real culture that is motivated more so by pietas than by the fear of the punishments. Which is necessary. It's not just nice. Like Obviously, living in a place where people respect, respect honor and truthfulness and oaths would be nicer than one where people just fear punishment and that's all. But it's necessary for precisely that reason that people, you can't really have a society where people don't, aren't consented on some level to the existence of the city and its form of rule. That's precisely what piety is, civically, is, yeah, this is, this is where we live and it's good. And the way it's ruled is good. Well, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is New Humanists, No Republic Was Ever Greater. Mm-hmm.